Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Even with the CARES Act, Nancy Pelosi had $650 billion of pork. In the middle of a global pandemic, if our federal government can't step in now, then what is what is any of our use as elected officials? And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune, I don't know. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there. I've been a uh, troublemaker for peace um, for many years, and I've never shied away from uh, my beliefs. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We just heard former Haddam Selectman Melissa Schlag, who triggered an angry response from supporters of the president by kneeling during the Pledge of Allegiance back in 2018. She died last Friday at the age of 46 after battling cancer. You also heard the voices of David X. Sullivan and Representative Johanna Hayes from Monday's 5th Congressional District Debate online. Hayes came back from a recent battle with COVID-19 to take part in the debate. And, of course, President Donald Trump is also dealing with his own case of COVID in his own way. We're going to talk about that with our excellent panel today. I want to welcome back Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Hi, Daniela. Hi. Also with us, Dr. Jonathan Wharton, Associate Professor of Political Science and Urban Affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. He's also Interim Associate Graduate School Dean at Southern. Jonathan, welcome back. Good morning, Lucy. And with us, Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show, and he's a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Lucy, Daniela, and Jonathan. And you can join us, too, on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Uh, Colin, I was thinking back to this last week. Uh, you know, this time last Wednesday, we were talking about this most ridiculous presidential debate that we were all absorbing. And then news broke that President Trump was positive for coronavirus. He was hospitalized, and now he's back at the White House. What do you make of uh, the recent news and the things that President Trump is now saying about coronavirus? Well, what do you make is a harder and harder question to answer about any of these things. In 1980, the New Yorker writer George W.S. Trow published a book called uh, In the Context of No Context. And I think that's kind of where we are right now. I mean, anything that we've ever understood before about public behavior, behavior by an executive, how to manage a pandemic, how to handle a Supreme Court a confirmation, uh, how to deal with the finances of a candidate who becomes president. It's all kind of out the window and everything that we've ever known uh, and, and you know, the, our, our, our points of reference are, are almost unusable under this, this situation. But to specifically answer your question, obviously, one of the things that President Trump could have done at the end of all this, at the end of this, you know, pretty appalling pageant that included murky responses from doctors. I mean, almost, uh, you know, in a way that's very mm. familiar, hard to get uh, basic information about the condition of the president uh, of the United States. And then, then the joyride with the Secret Service agents and then the Juan Perón moment on the balcony there. Um, you know, I mean, what he could have done was to have kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge moment, right? He could have 
at the end of all this, it could have been Christmas morning where he kind of realizes the error of his ways and the hardness of his response and the ways in which, uh, you know, he really has underestimated the power uh, of this disease and, and the suffering and loss that this nation has experienced. And he's gone in the opposite direction. He's still, if anything, if he's doubled down on his idea that this whole thing is just a cakewalk that nobody should be getting too excited about. Now, everybody else except him doesn't have six doctors taking mm-hmm. care of him with pretty much total focus. They don't have access to the Regeneron uh, uh, monoclonal antibody cocktail, which isn't even available as an emergency youth use authorization right now. So he, he also doesn't seem to understand that whatever he experienced – having COVID-19. It's not what an uninsured American experienced experiences, and it's not even what most insured Americans experience. And, you know, he just, he hasn't brought us any closer together. And he had an opportunity. I'll say one last thing about this. Politically, he's made gigantic mistakes in the last 48 hours. One of them is just pulling the plug abruptly on the stimulus package. Uh, I don't see how that helps him with anybody who's wondering whether to vote for him. And the people who are not going to vote for him because he mismanaged the COVID crisis could have been brought back to the table with some kind of conciliatory, enhanced perspective statement here. And they didn't get that either. Jonathan, what's your take? Colin mentioned, uh, you know, the Trump could have had a screw Ebenezer Scrooge moment. But would that have impacted his base? Would that have made him seem like he is compromising? No, I, I think that, you know, Colin gave quite a laundry list there. I mean, one thing that he emphasizes that Colin mentions, I, I certainly want to stress on is that we have to remember he's a double down kind of president. And he's also one who likes to kind of charge up his base, which he did in going out and, and parading around um, there in, in the uh, motorcade. So to me, that wasn't surprising um, in terms of the stance. He's done that in the past. That's the way he operates. I guess the one thing, though, Lucy and, and uh, Colin, Danielle, I'd love to hear back from you is, is what Colin said about the stimulus package. To me, hearing that yesterday was more surprising um, that he decided to uh, not allow that to happen. And I wonder if a part of it is just to go against Nancy Pelosi. Uh, just out of spite in light of everything. Um, that's what I'm thinking in the back of my head. So so among everything and the tactics and approaches he's done for the camera, that doesn't shock me, but just the policy dynamic of just doing this before the election, even before the debate, was, was more shocking to me. Mm. Daniela, what do you think of that strategy about the COVID relief uh, money? Well, is it even a strategy? Can you call mm-hmm. it a strategy? Strategy, sorry, can't speak. Um, <laughs> I mean, last night he tweeted that that it was all back on, or that elements of it were back on. I mean, it's just this topsy turvy. Now the market futures are up again. I mean, it's just it it it's this sort of roller coaster craziness that we're dealing with, where we don't really know which way is up anymore. Um, I mean, it's anything that was true. Uh, 24 hours ago or, or, you know, 10 hours ago or two hours ago with Trump, it's, it's always turned upside down again. It's always, you know, there's, you don't really know, you can't get your footing um, because it's just so, um, everything is so volatile. Daniela, I'd also like to emphasize what you're saying, you know, that last night he appeared having first tweeted that the idea of pulling the plug on the whole negotiation process, he tweeted that he would support certain kinds of standalone 
uh, yeah. relief. Now, Pelosi has been backing that idea for weeks, saying that she w- she would do a standalone airlines bill, for example. She'd break it up into little pieces. The opposition to that idea has come from Republican leadership on the Hill. So, you know, yeah, you said, could this possibly be a strategy? I agree. It seems like, you know, a guy who's kind of crazy to begin with uh, on a pretty powerful steroid is he's just not even really paying any attention to anything. He, he's petulantly pulling the plug on stimulus negotiations and then a few hours later proposing something that his own allies on the Hill currently oppose. Hmm. Colin, can we go back to something you raised about the information uh, coming out of the White House, uh, um, his personal doctor, the fact that information has really been limited and this idea that, you know, he we don't know when uh, he was positive and what it means if he still has symptoms or not and just some of the information when he was at Walter Reed. I mean, this is problematic when we think about uh, the presidential election uh, just, uh, what, less than a month away and the health of the president and even Joe Biden. That's important. Right. So, I mean, he's not the first president to conceal or withhold certain critical pieces of health information. I mean, we can certainly go back to JFK, who was a very sick man for most of his time in office. And we never understood that Uh, in in a way that was perilous. uh, He was a very sick man. I think what's different now is that you have this doctor, Sean Conley who is, by the way, a DO, not an MD, uh, out in front uh, of this phalanx of other doctors and and just sort of getting caught in lies. I mean, it's one thing to withhold information. Uh, It's another thing to sort of say things or trying to thread needles in ways that are really obvious so that the press is asking, well, was he ever on oxygen? Was there any point when he was on oxygen? You know, and and in, in those kinds of cases, giving answers that either conflict with the existing White House vision uh, version or our departures from the truth or will be contradicted by Mark Meadows in about 10 minutes after the press conference. I mean, you, the difference between, you know, some of the previous presidents who've maybe managed information about their health is that there haven't been two or three competing versions. I mean, what Dr. Conley was saying and what Mark Meadows was saying pretty much in the same time window were very, very different. And it's I feel like Casey Stengel can't nobody play this game. I mean, you at least have to put one message out, not a bunch of competing messages. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, can, we, I just say, can I just say one thing about what one thing Colin said that I, I just want to pick apart for one minute. This distinction between a DO and an MD, and maybe some callers out there can uh, can uh, call in about that. I, I don't think that's a distinction that has any meaningful um, difference. I don't think that that makes any difference at all. He's a credentialed doctor. And I, from my understanding, DOs have an extra level of training that... Uh, sort of uh, deals with the whole body. I I don't really understand it, but I've seen DOs, I've seen MDs, they're exactly the same. They have the same uh, level of training and uh, there's really no difference between them. So I don't think that's uh, a meaningful thing to to critique uh, this Dr. Connolly on. Um, Maybe some callers can call in and correct me, I'm not sure, but uh, I I don't, from what I understand, I don't think it's anything um, uh, that uh, should send up any red flags or should really even be noted. 
Can we talk about the public response? Uh, Jonathan Wharton, you wrote a, a column uh, when uh, the Americans found out that uh, President Trump had COVID and he was headed to Walter Reed. Uh, definitely a difference in opinion on whether the president would learn his lesson or what this would mean uh, uh, for uh, his ongoing health because there's so much that we don't know about COVID. Uh, what were some of your reflections? Well, I you know, drew out in the Connecticut News Junkie piece for the op-ed on, on uh, I guess it was Friday or Saturday, that, you know, as much as people have a distaste, even hate, outright hate for Donald Trump, I mean, the amount of social media attacks against him, that uh, people were wishing death upon him, I mean, even to the point where I think you all know Twitter and Facebook was um, taking down any posts related to that. Um, look, I, I get the people's anger and frustration on all this, but at the end of the day, he is our president. He was elected four years ago, whether you like it or not. And so I was outspoken saying, whether you disagree with the man or not, it's, it's a humanity issue here in the sense of, you know, it's just totally unfair to, to make it personal and to go after him on this. Um, now, I have to tell you, Lucy, I was taken back uh, how many responses I got back to it, which I guess I shouldn't be shocked at. I mean, there were two dozen responses to it on Facebook, for example, which is probably the most I've ever had, um, you know, on, on the column. Um, and so you can imagine the different sides on this, uh, which I guess should be expected in light of this era. It's just so personal. It's it's just, this is the, you know, the era we're in right now in politics. Hmm. You you quote, you said that in your column that they're a sign of our political dystopia. Uh, but Colin, when we think about this dystopia, uh, the, the president's uh, contributions uh, to this moment that we're in. So look, one of the most challenging and profound ideas within Christian ethics is the idea that we cannot give up on anybody, that the, the Ted Bundy in his final moments is potentially redeemable. Now that's, and, and I, I've struggled with that and, and, and tried to embrace that idea. I think it's kind of an important one. On the other hand, that doesn't suggest that O.J. Simpson and John Lewis are people of comparable value uh, in the way that they function. It doesn't suggest that kind of equality. So Donald Trump deserves the crumbs of kindness that fall off the table where the rest of us sit sharing our common humanity and that notion uh, of any people, any person having dignity and worth. But he is not, based on his behavior, entitled to a seat at the table. Uh, you know, he would have to change a lot to be able to do that. And and Jonathan, you know, as much as I love you, um, I, I thought that, that your article had a little bit of a both sidesism problem. Yes, there are there there is an incredible polarization that predates Trump. But Trump has done things to disrupt the polity and the comity of this country that that have gone unopposed by the Republican Party. And that's a big part of the problem. Whether it's standing at those twenty six debate and going, going such a nasty woman about Hillary Clinton or the things uh, that he said about uh, congressional members of Congress who, who should go back where they came from, or when he used troops to clear uh, a, a way so that he could have a Bible photo op, where whether he, when he interrupted Joe Biden, who was trying to talk about his dead son, uh, and said, which son is it, the drug addict? You know, the problem right now is that the Republican Party has never stood up against this guy. And quite the contrary, from McConnell and McCarthy on down, they have enabled and supported him. So, yeah, I mean, it would be really nice if the dinner guests at Hannibal Lecter's dinner parties had better manners. But the real problem is that Hannibal Lecter kills and eats people, you know. So, yeah, it would be nice if people could be nicer uh, about Trump's covid but it seems a little beside the point, you know, I mean, our, 
our public discourse has been destroyed. Trump has played the biggest role of anybody in it. And, and to suggest that now, now we've really got to start thinking about our manners when we really haven't for three or four years is what I had a problem with. Mm, well, I guess I just don't wish death upon someone, and especially somebody like our elected officials, Colin. I mean, that's really my biggest dispute in all of this. Um, and there have been some outspoken Republicans against him publicly. So there have been a few here, man. people like Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, and others. It's not an easy situation, and I get that. Yeah, I don't wish death on, on Trump at all. But I mean, you know, on Saturday Night Live, uh, Jim Carrey playing Joe Biden said, what would it be like if science and karma came together? And, and you know, there is a sense in which this guy went out and, and defied all medical advice, all uh, infectious disease device, and now he's caught this disease. And And I don't want him to die, but I don't. It's hard to feel sorry for him. It's hard to feel sorry for him and not think of the hundreds of thousands of people uh, who died. The wife of a Stanford uh, uh, probation officer was on CNN on Monday night talking about this, how her husband died at the age of 32 and that she still sees Donald Trump using this as a tool for political division, not as a tool for educating the public about the best practices to keep the most people alive. So, yeah, it would be nice if the worst person in this entire drama were still talked about with basic attitudes of dignity. But it's asking a lot at this point. I want to just transition quickly and talk about a good person, somebody that made contributions to her town and, and this state. As I mentioned at the top of the show, former Haddam Selectman Melissa Schlag passed away last Friday after battling cancer. She was a guest on Colin's show uh, two years ago. Uh, that time she described some of the angry online messages she received after she kneeled during the Pledge of Allegiance at town meetings. Let's hear what she said. More than half of them, they, they'll have some very sexually explicit attack uh, on me and then end it with hashtag MAGA. I'm sorry, but I don't know of how to make America great again by attacking somebody with sexual violence, violent words on Facebook. Mm. Daniela, this fits in with the discussion uh, that Colin mm -hmm. and Jonathan were just having about this moment that we're in, uh, this a lot of polarization and nasty comments, uh, hateful comments uh, per, on social media. This was something that Melissa dealt with back in 2018 because she kneeled at a town meeting. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the climate and, you know, the climate, the sort of no holds barred, you know, um, approach that Trump and his supporters have taken and have made things really deeply personal. You can disagree with her. I mean, I very vividly remember a night at the Haddam Firehouse. It was about 100 degrees. And uh, this was the follow-up meeting to the original meeting where she had knelt. And um, I talked to a man there, an older man who was a veteran, and he said he vehemently disagrees with everything she's doing and everything she's, you know, her her policy stands, her approach, but he would defend her right to do it. And so many others in that room were just, there was so much anger and it was so personal. And that was in public. I can only imagine privately what she was dealing with. Um, and, you know, that climate, sure, of course, it existed. Political polarization has existed forever. Um, but, you know, in terms of sort of the tone and the deeply personal, um, incredibly nasty and, you um, cruel remarks that people have made that people are making i think that's new to this era and you have to sort of wonder why that's occurring now mm, jonathan before we head to break how do you think we can reduce this kind of rage this political anger that exists 
I wish I could find a way, Lucy. I think, you know, I'm on the front lines with this quite frequently, not just with local politics, but even in the classroom. Um, it's difficult to break through. And I've been frustrated about this for years. So it was unfortunate to see her pass uh, at 46 years old. And, and I remember when this whole thing went down, it was during the gubernatorial election and it got very politicized by so many candidates. It was really unfortunate. So maybe it could be a good reminder to everyone that there can be causes and stances which you may disagree with, but you should honor. Colin, you spoke with Melissa. What are your final thoughts when you heard that she'd passed? Well, I mean, my, my thoughts when I got the news on Saturday were thoughts of, of great sorrow. Uh, she seemed like an admirable person. But I also, there's a way in which extremism has crept into a, a lot of municipal politics. We did a whole show about racism mm -hmm. in small town politics uh, in Connecticut, but also a kind of militarism, the kind of extremism that we associate uh, with violent movements from the past. You see this more and more. It's even there in the CT Liberty Rally people, the, the people who are kind of anti-government, anti-science, anti-medicine, anti-COVID treatment. You see violent exhortations there. Uh, you saw people bring guns uh, to the Michigan State Capitol. Uh, you saw President Trump say liberate Michigan when they did, bringing guns to protest anti-COVID measures. And, and I do think what's happening more and more in a way that really frightens me is that extremism, not just the kind of verbal extremism that Melissa endured, but extremism that leads to violence is bleeding into more sectors of the public debate. And it genuinely worries me. That's Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show here on Connecticut Public Radio. Also here with us, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current, and Dr. Jonathan Wharton, associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern. Coming up after the break, there's a vice presidential debate tonight. Will you be watching? This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel on the panel today. Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Dr. Jonathan Wharton, associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University. And Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. He's also a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Again, Republican Mike Pence will debate Democrat Kamala Harris tonight. It's the, in the only vice presidential debate. Daniela, you're the politics reporter. Does this debate seem a little more important given the last week's news? <laughs> it sure does. I mean, it, I think a lot of people were always kind of excited for this because, um, you know, those two uh, people, uh, the Harris and Pence, are um, very different, I think, certainly than, than Trump and, and Biden. So we're going to see something something really different. And certainly Harris's uh, approach to past debates and when she was in the Democratic primary, uh, they were quite um, entertaining and, uh, you know, sort of she was, uh, you know, she was pretty aggressive coming out. And I think uh, it made for some some insightful watching. So I think uh, there's a lot of eyes on tonight. I'm certainly eager to, to see what unfolds. Jonathan, you were telling us before the show that you're excited to watch uh, two lawyers duke it out. Oh, am I ever. Plus, not to mention, I hate saying this, but I'm just so sick of what's gone on between both of the, you know, the big ticket candidates. I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I guess I'm really excited to see a couple of 50 year olds fighting it out. And so I, I'd rather see that. And, and the fact that they're lawyers and they've done this per profession, and obviously they were US senators, I, I'd rather see this. And I know people are gonna probably come after me on this. I, I just, I wanna change up. So I'm excited to see this. 
Colin, what do you think uh, Kamala Harris uh, will uh, debate Mike Pence on in terms of wanting to bring out certain points, like focusing on uh, health care and the dismantling of the Affordable Care Act or, or just the fact that uh, COVID continues uh, to impact so many Americans and look what happened to the president? Well, y yes to everything that you just said. I just want to back up and say one thing about this. This debate should not be happening, not the way that it's happening. Mm. Mike Pence should be quarantining for 14 days mm -hmm. from his last direct exposure, setting up pe plexiglass. Saskia P Popescu, who's a, an epidemiologist from Arizona, has been on my show a lot. She, she said what they've been doing, it, it's like asking experts to tell you how to drive drunk more safely. <laughs> You know, I mean, you don't. You just don't drive drunk. That's what you do. So don't have a person-to-person, in-person debate right now. It's too dangerous. And, and I might add, going back to the previous section, the fact that we don't have a clear timeline about President mm -hmm. Trump's disease onset and exposure also raises questions about whether the October 15th debate can, can be safely held person-to-person. -person. Um, but he, but Trump should have quarantined right after Hope Hicks tested po uh, positive. That's what you do. So this debate shouldn't be happening, and, but it's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, uh, expect Harris to bring up attempts to uh, overturn the Affordable Care Act, attempts to ram through Barrett's nomination so they can overturn the Affordable Care Act and get rid of the protection for pre-existing conditions. And yes, the mismanagement uh, of, of the COVID crisis. Uh, I think you can probably also expect her to to talk about Trump's dismissive comments of late about the seriousness of the pandemic, especially in light of the beyond blue chip available to no other American care that he just received. So, yeah, I, the more that she can keep covid, uh, the the uh, pulling the plug of the stimulus relief uh, and, st and stuff like that and, and the ACA on the table, the more time she has to score points. Speaking to Colin, uh, questioning whether this debate should even be happening, uh, given uh, Mike Pence's proximity uh, to uh, people at the White House uh, after that uh, Rose Garden event uh, with uh, a Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Baird and others, uh, Daniela. We should mention there was even a debate whether there should be plexiglass on stage tonight. Finally, Mike Pence's camp agreed they're going to be 12 feet apart with curved plexigra plexiglass barriers between them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that wasn't, um, you know, initially he had rejected that as well. I think, uh, I, I don't know this, but it would seem like maybe the strategy was to get the Democrats to say they're not debating, and then the Republicans, it, whether it's Pence or, or Trump, can say, we, you know, they're afraid of us or we wanted to debate, and they refused, and they're not telling the American people what they stand for. It, perhaps that was part of the strategy with um, rejecting some of these public health measures. Jonathan, you wrote about uh, Kamala Harris a while ago uh, when uh, Joe Biden chose her to be his running mate, and you talked about what her background means to uh, the diversity of black America. Can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely, Lucy. I really found pleasure reading, uh, you know, more and more about the background of Kamala Harris, especially since, you know, she um, went to Howard University, which is my alma mater. And, um, you know, I guess what sparked it was just some concerns out there in social media, especially on Twitter, that she wasn't, quote, black enough. Um, and I really emphasize that out that, that there has to be healthy respect and understanding about the African diaspora. Um, that yes, uh, certainly her mother is, is Indian and, and she is half Indian, but she's also, um, you know, her, her father was Jamaican. And so she's kind of this embodiment of, yes, the South Asian, but even the African diaspora. And so for me, it's, it's kind of intriguing to go through her biography and have a better understanding of why she went to a place like Howard University. 
um, to respect at least the uh, dichotomy of all these cultures and backgrounds that make uh, not just African-Americans, you know, at least uh, black and all that, but it's really the fact that it's the understanding and respect of the entire black diaspora. And so um, I got a lot of feedback on that, both positive and negative, uh, which is kind of interesting to me. I, I think Americans don't quite understand the complexities or the nuances of um, you know, people who have varied backgrounds like hers. That's Jonathan Wharton again. He's an associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University, also interim dean of the graduate school there. Colin McEnroe's here, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR, and Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current. Uh, before we go to break, I just want to remind you it's Connecticut Public Radio's fall fundraising campaign. Campaign. I can't talk today. Support the wheelhouse and all the great programming you hear with the pledge of support. Here are two of my colleagues to tell you more. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely on a on our panel today, Daniela Altamari, state government and politics reporter at the Hartford Current, Dr. Jonathan Wharton, interim associate graduate school dean and associate professor of political science and urban affairs at Southern Connecticut State University, and Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on Connecticut Public Radio. You can join us too. Find us on Twitter at WMPR Wheelhouse. Uh, speaking of COVID, Representative Johanna Hayes came back from her battle with COVID-19 to debate Republican David X. Sullivan in the fifth district race. The debate was online Monday night. It also included third-party candidate Bruce Walzak, if I'm saying that correctly, a, re a relocation consultant from Newtown who's been endorsed by the independent party. Daniela, you wrote a, a takeaway for the Hartford Current, five takeaways from this first debate between Hayes and Sullivan. Uh, first off, though, how is Congresswoman Hayes doing right now? Um, she seemed to be doing a lot better. She did speak during the debate about how uh, COVID had personally impacted her. She went very public with her. You know, she's not somebody who who generally um, shares a, a lot of detail about, um, uh, you know, she she's um, certainly, you know, she's available and accessible on policy issues, but um, she's been, you know, rather careful about some of her um, personal uh, life. Um, but she did very publicly share her battle with COVID um, several weeks back, she seemed to be doing fine. You know, I think she's um, she's recovered uh, or is recovering, which uh, which is good news for mm. where you stand. <laughs> Before we dig into what they spoke about, tell us more about David X. Sullivan. Who is he? So he's a uh, career prosecutor. Uh, he's um, been with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office here in Connecticut for for decades, and um, he teaches. Uh, I think he teaches at pretty much every. Uh, school in in the in the southern or western part of the state he teaches at western connecticut state university he teaches at yale um and he um teaches at one other school maybe quinnipiac i can't remember um and he um you know he's uh he's a republican he's uh fairly conservative uh particularly on law law and order issues uh obviously big topic this year and uh i think in this race you're seeing a very clear distinction between the two candidates um you know, between uh, Representative Hayes, the Democrat, and uh, and David Sullivan, um, very very different views um, on really almost every issue. The w the one point that they did agree upon, uh, they did agree on in their debate the other night was about a federal mask mandate. Both candidates agreed that's probably something that should be left to the state level, but pretty much on any other issue, um, police uh, accountability. Um, 
uh, COVID relief, taxes, uh, health care. There were very stark contrasts between the two. Mm You said he was the law and order candidate. How does that play out in the 5th District? It's a a different uh, part of the state where then when you think about like heavily Democratic parts of of Connecticut, uh, is this something that voters are embracing? Um, It's tough to say, but certainly his message, particularly, I mean, you're right, the 5th District is a really uh, interesting place because it spans from the suburbs of the Farmington Valley, like, um, you know, uh, Avon and, and Simsbury uh, to Danbury, big geographically. It includes uh, some some of Connecticut's uh, older, you know, industrial centers like Waterbury and um, New Britain. And uh, it's, you know, it's a pretty diverse place. So the message he's sending is that he is the law and order candidate and that Representative Hayes is a candidate of uh, of socialism. That's That's been his message. So uh, how that plays in 2020, I, I'm not sure. I guess we'll find out in about uh, a month or so. Colin, there's so much going on. You know, what's your take in terms of are are people paying attention to these congressional races? Is this one out of the others probably might be the closest race in Connecticut when we think about congressional seats? Yeah, if you were going to pick one, you'd pick this one. The fifth is typically a very tippy district, just a, mm-hmm. the registration's a little bit closer, and it's notoriously volatile and, and unpredictable, as Daniela is suggesting. It's actually kind of the merger uh, of the old fifth and the old sixth mm-hmm. districts, with some of the excess being parceled out in other places. Uh, and, and as a result, it has a very conservative spine that's either the Naugatuck River or Route 8. You take your pick, but, you know, and, and it's, it's not a consistent spine. Some of it, I think, bleeds into another district. But, you know, you've got some really, really conservative strongholds that were very, very strong for President Trump. So you've got to talk to them if you're the Republican nominee. But my question about Sullivan is, I mean, his rhetoric, rhetoric, he got in this to fight uh, socialism. Now he realizes it's a fight against Marxism. <laughs> Excuse me? Uh, I mean, I, I not only does that not really particularly strike me as true, uh, but I, I don't understand outside of, once again, some, you know, pretty Trumpy people uh, along Route 8. I don't know who that speaks to. He's also, we talked about this a couple of uh, wheelhouses ago, talked about sort of, you know, American carnage in Simsbury and Avon that you're going you're gonna to have, I guess, Antifa and BLM, you know, duking it out with uh, the Proud Boys there. I don't even know what point he was trying to make, but... You know, yeah, apparently it's like, let's fire up the Volvos and go stomp some squares. There's going to be just like (laughs) violence in Simsbury. Uh, So some of it has seemed a little tin-eared to me. On the other hand, you know, Hayes is a first-term member of Congress in the most volatile of the five districts. So, And he is a more credible candidate than typically gets put up in a lot of these races. So it's certainly the race to watch. Hmm. Jonathan, what's your take on on this particular race, and including how uh, this candidate David X. Sullivan is is trying to tie uh, Representative Hayes to people like uh, Nancy Pelosi and Representative Ocasio Cortez? I got an email from his campaign where he called Hayes quote a rubber stamp for every left wing nightmare. Well, I mean, look, he's <laughs> trying to pay to not just his base but beyond. I think one thing we're forgetting in that district is. Uh, Colin kind of spoke a little bit towards this, but maybe we could spend a little more time on this. There are so many unaffiliated voters in that mm. district. Um, and they lean, yes, as Colin is saying, um, Republican and, and maybe yes, towards Trump. But I would say that they're not exactly affiliated directly with the state party 
and may not even identify directly with the National Party, but they are likely uh, more Trump folk. So I, I would say that it would be very interesting to see the turnout from that side of the district and what does that mean? Plus one thing we, we can't ignore um, is the fact that, you know, there were going to be multiple candidates for this race initially. We can't forget Rob Hyde, among others. There are going to be all these Republicans that are going to come out to, to run in the primary. And it just got really messy uh, back in the spring. So we, we can't forget some of this, too, internally within even the Republican Party at the state level. And then a final thing, uh, going back to the 90s, if you don't mind, Colin, I, I've always been fascinated by this district because it's, you know, it's Nancy Johnson's and, and also Gary Frank's kind of district. <laughs> and so those were two different Republicans that were two very different Republicans. Um, so it, it really speaks towards this district. Of course, Johanna Hayes is also, Johanna Hayes is also very popular because, you know, she's also teacher of the year. And I can't forget, of course, she's, you know, she's a Southern alumna. So got to make that pitch. You mentioned Nancy Johnson. That feels like ages ago, Jonathan. <laughs> I know. It, it may be worth remembering. Maybe with remembering that essentially what happened was that uh, Maloney and Johnson were both sitting members of Congress uh, in two different di districts, the fifth and the sixth, and they had to fight uh, like dogs oh, over a right. scrap of meat uh, <laughs> over the one existing district that came out of that process. Right. Wanna... right. I, I think Johanna Hayes has been very careful, though. I mean, she has mm. not. Um, aligned herself with the squad, uh, mm -hmm. you know, so to speak, directly. I mean, she's been, uh, she's not uh, AOC. She's not, um, you know, uh, Rashida Tlaib. She's she's definitely a very different um, kind of candidate that, you know, perhaps is more in step with the with the fifth district than certainly um, maybe some of those, uh, you know, far to the left candidates would be. Um, whether, you know, this attempt to sort of paint her as that uh, will stick, you know, again, I, I don't know, but um, it is interesting that that's the strategy. I mean, her husband's a police officer, so uh, that does um, mute a little bit some of the criticism um, that could be levied against, you know, some of these other um, very progressive uh, members of Congress. It's time for Feats of Strength, airing of Grievances. Colin, you want to go ahead? Well, uh, knowing that I was going to be on the air with a, a graduate of Howard University who was also an interim dean <laughs> and who wanted to bring up this whole issue of mores vis-a-vis uh, -vis Donald Trump's uh, illness, I, I want to shout out Yolanda Pierce, dean of Howard University's Divinity School, who tweeted apropos of this topic, I will not perform false politeness in the presence of evil. So, Jonathan, you got to take it up with uh, your fellow dean uh, at your alma mater. Uh, but uh, I also want to quickly shout out a podcast called Two Minutes Past Nine. It's by the BBC. It's all the episodes are 14 minutes. It's about the bombing of the uh, Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City. But it takes it forward into some of the things that I was talking about earlier to the way the extremism of that time is manifesting even in the anti-government COVID forces of today. Nice. I'll put that on my list. Jonathan. <laughs> well, Colin, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that a lot of shout out. I'm going to have to take a look at that on Twitter. I, I want to at least give a shout out to um, journalists like my colleague in the journalism department, Jody Gill, um, who I think some of you all know worked at the Register and is from Seymour, Connecticut. We've been working on this article comparing different towns and how they've been dealing with budgeting during COVID and online. And she sent me a very awesome email about um, our co-authoring this article and doing this comparative study. And it really made my morning. Um, <laughs> I know most reporters don't quite like me, but um, I, I appreciate working with her and it really made my day. So shout out to her and a lot of the journalists out there in the field doing a lot of this research. Grateful. We like you, Jonathan. <laughs> Daniela. <laughs> Daniela. 
Um, real briefly, I would say my feat of strength, one that I've never uh, been able to um, uh, to actually partake on, but I, I appreciate the feat of strength. There are others who can do this. Stop doom scrolling. Turn off Twitter at a set time <laughs> at night. Don't go back on. Um, it's hard. Um, like I said, I'm. this is not something that I've been able to do, but what a feat of strength for those who can. Colin, what do you think about that? Are you able to to turn off at a certain time of day? Um, no, I would say <laughs> no. I um, mean, particularly of late, where you know, uh, who's the next person to report a, a positive infection test? You don't want to go, go fall asleep before you get the news about Stephen Miller. Well, I'm a, I'm a known Twitter addict, so I get the feeling, but I can't do it. <laughs> I should it's give hard. a hard. It's really hard. But how <laughs> would it be for all of our mental health to do that? I mean. It's crazy. The, you I know, did take down my Facebook, though, to be fair, because it's election season, but I have my oh. Twitter account very active. <laughs> that, that's a good step in the right direction good for you. I admire that. We should give a shout out to the New York Times. It has that nifty tracker of who is positive uh, from the White House circle. You can go and, and see the latest there, including some journalists, I, I should mention. I also want to give a shout out to uh, Wheelhouse panelist, Dr. Kalila Brown-Dean, whose new show, Disrupted premieres on Connecticut Public Radio today at 2 p.m. Uh, definitely worth a listen. Uh, we're excited for her, and I can't wait uh, to hear that episode. I want to thank our great panelists again, uh, Daniela Altamari from the Hartford Current. She's state government and politics reporter. You can follow her at Capital Watch. Dr. Jonathan Wharton, interim associate graduate school dean and associate professor of political science at Southern Connecticut State University, with the best handle on Twitter at Preppy Prof. Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Thanks to Matt Dwyer, who produced today's show. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. And again, it's our fall fundraising campaign. Connecticut Public Radio relies on listener support to keep programs like The Wheelhouse coming to you each and every week. If you want to support this programming and the great analysis you hear from our panelists, here are two of my colleagues to tell you more.